Hi, everybody. I want to just thank you for tuning in, as well as encourage you if you have any questions, feedback, as well as suggestions for upcoming guests, please feel free to reach out to me. The best way to doing so is either through LinkedIn or my personal email, which is poyaaskui at gmail.com. That's spelled P-O-Y-A-O-S-G-O-U-E-I. Again, appreciate you for listening to today's episodes. Hi, Peter. Thanks so much for joining Uncharted and Eclectic. It's great to have you. Good to be here. Thanks for having me, Boya. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure, my friend. It's a pleasure. Typically, what yeah, we'd love to do to kick off the show is, I know you're a basketball fan. Uh, you're, you played yep. probably your whole life. You played at uh, UNH, which is a fun fact I learned doing some research so give give us your baseball card my friend like about where you grew up your upbringing as well as uh how you got to where you are today uh sure so i i we sort of, my family moved around a lot i grew up in the north shore of boston um but we lived internationally for about five years um i played basketball as a kid all my life um i was a terrible um a terrible natural basketball player but i was a gym rat so i weaseled my way as a walk on into a, a a division one program, um, you know, didn't see a lot of playing time. It really wasn't for me long-term realized pretty quickly. I wasn't going to make it to the NBA. Um, so instead focused more so on, um, school and academics than anything else. But after school, I, uh, you know, I, I think I did what the majority of my peers were doing, which was in 2005 struggled to figure out like what I wanted to do with my life. Knew I didn't really want to work for other people thought the the idea of being an entrepreneur was interesting, but had no idea what the hell I was doing in business. So I ended up working, um, frankly, for a, for a small radio station, which was interesting. I eventually got my way into um, a small venture fund, worked with entrepreneurs on, on raising capital, um, learned that being on the other side of the table as an entrepreneur would probably be a lot more fun. So I joined a, a small, now defunct company um, that sold administration software into uh, admissions committees in universities, public and private. And through that, I met a guy named Patrick Campbell. Um, who is, has become a friend of mine, but also uh, was just starting out a company called ProfitWell, which helps uh, subscription companies with the hardest parts of growth. Um, he was dating a woman who lived in the apartment next to me and said, hey, I'm working on interesting. We're actually struggling with, at the time, uh, pricing at that other startup. And uh, lo and behold, in late 2012, early 2013, he and I got together, um, started working on this. At the time, it was called Price Intelligently, and it's now gone through a name change, which has been a horrible, horrible experience. If you don't have product marketing um, done well, then changing a name and a brand is tough. But anyways, we're called ProfitWell now. We've been doing this for about seven and a half, almost eight years. Um, it's been fun. It's been hectic. It's been frustrating. Um, it's been a shit show. But um, all in all, it's been a hell of a ride. So that's the baseball card. Well, it, well said, well communicated. You have such a diverse background. It's, it's, it's hard to nitpick where we want to kind of kick it off. So I guess the first question I would have is, look, looking back, uh, whether it's basketball, the various jobs you've had, being in the radio industry, working at the VCs, what's, what experience would you say has shaped you the most uh, to become the person you are today? Like whether in a challenging way or that's had at least had the most impact? Um, I, I think we you know, probably like yourself too, probably to some degree. Um, Powell is a bootstrap startup. We don't have any, we don't have any venture funding. We don't have any outside investors. Um, 
the growth of the business has just been on the backs of customers. And um, it sounds really sexy to say that. And I think a lot of times when we talk about being good chef startup people, um, their ears perked up uh, or your ears do perk up because we've been doing it for so long that, that we must be doing something right. And the reality is that, yes, um, it feels good to, to own all the equity and have all the employees be you know significant stakeholders in the business. But the reality is it, it makes things harder. Um, we don't have a giant balance sheet that we can live off of. Um, it makes you a lot scrappier. It makes you earn every dollar to the nth degree. It makes you really frugal as far as what you spend money on. Um, so I think if I looked at what has shaped me or I guess to a degree us as a business and, and had us be somewhat successful, I guess, in some people's eyes is um, we've had to work for every penny that we've earned and it, and doing so as a bootstrap startup has given us an opportunity to do that. I think in a way that, um, other companies or other employees and other companies don't get the, the chance to do. Um, there's more of a safety net at other companies that are venture back or that have a ton of money on the balance sheet. Um, and so I think it's been a wake up every day is a wake up call for this because, um, you know, I, it, even though we've been around for almost eight years, every day is still, you know, it's, it's harder than the last um, and growing a business is, is challenging in and of itself doing so without, um, you know, fresh capital on the balance sheet from an outside in, or institutional investor makes you, you know, makes you really careful about the money that comes in and the money that goes out and, and treating, you know, customers the right way and treating prospects the right way and, and treating the market the right way just in, in general. So I think it's probably what has shaped me to answer your question is probably the last eight years um, has probably shaped my perspective on what it means to, to work hard and be, I think, successful in some, some way. I don't think we're successful to the degree that we'd like to be successful. And um, obviously, I don't know how you define success, but I think we feel pretty good um, with where we are today, but unsatisfied with where we really want to go. Yeah. One of the things we bring up is, however you want to call it, delight the customer, see customer feedback, especially in the early days, right? You don't have a, a board, but you, you have your customers that are essentially your board because they're paying the bills, right? Uh, in some ways. Yep. So you've been on this journey for eight years, right? And you folks have scaled and grown, um, incredible so like you're what 85 90 employees now i'm assuming if i'm correct uh yeah just just about that yep yeah so one of the things you bring up is uh like in the early days instilling those values right whether it's like delighting the customer making sure the customer's voice is heard as you scale it becomes tougher and tougher so how have you, Patrick, the rest of the team, been able to kind of do that as you've scaled? How, how have you been able to kind of maintain that customer-first mentality in making sure not only do the people on the top believe it, but it goes all the way to the people that are in the trenches working the day-to-day? -day? Um, this is a really tough question. Or it's, it's a, I guess maybe an easy question. It's a really tough one to answer. And I don't know... What works for us may not work for other people, but I think to your point about leading from the top, um, this is critical. So we have, uh, one of the values that we have as a business is um, feedback is non-negotiable. And what that means is it doesn't, it doesn't give you a right to be a jerk to people when you walk in the door of ProfitWell, but it does um, give people the right to, to, be, to provide uh, like constructive criticism to employees across the, across the board, right? Whether that's a senior employee, a junior employee, myself, Patrick, doesn't matter. Everybody has to be open to feedback and people have to be willing to give feedback. And what that means is that um, when we see something, we see some, we say, hey, look, we're going to set out and this is the way we're going to treat our customers. This is the way we're going to treat our employees. And this is the way we're going to treat um, our, our, you know, our partners, be it vendors or integration partners or whatever. 
you know, we try to uphold that. And where people sort of fall out of line, we empower, you know, the everyday person at Profitwell to make sure that they're, you know, keeping people accountable by providing constructive criticism and feedback just at large. Um, but we have strived to, I think, set the tone as far as what makes a, a proper successful customer, whether that's pure NPS or some metric that you measure on customer success. Um, it's going to be different for every every organization. We, we have it, our version of that in our own right. Um, and then I think it's, you know, the rest is hiring smart people and, and empowering them to do the job that you hired them to do and, and taking a step back and letting them do that job uh, and trusting them to do it in the way that you hire them for. Um, and that sometimes is, is easier said than done. I think as a, as a, as a bootstrapped company, sometimes we get in our own ways as far as early people in the organization thinking that we, you know, we could do it better than the new guy or the new gal. And while that may be true, that that person's never going to learn if you don't teach them. If you just sort of do it for them, it's never, it's never particularly valuable. So I think it's setting, you know, setting one is what are the values of the organization um, executing on those values, both from a hiring perspective as, as well as a feedback perspective. And then two, hiring people that are smart, that are capable and getting out of their way and letting them do their job. Well said, and, and I appreciate you making it uh, so tactical. The question that popped up, you, uh, one of the things you've done, right, in the seven, eight years, I'm sure if you looked back, like there's a lot of nuggets that you wish maybe you had known before you got into it but it's hindsight's 2020. So what are the most important, I would say, lessons that you want to communicate people, at least from your experience, whether it's failures, challenges, things that you've, you've had to learn the hard way looking back. Um, I think I always kind of coming back to communication. Like I I think most of the time there, there are tactical lessons that you learn along the way, right? Like, how can you get better when you're presenting to clients or how do you make sure that you're prepared for a sales pitch um, or how do you make sure that you onboard an employee properly? All of those things are relatively mechanical in nature. I find that the biggest challenge and still to this day is not easy is communication. And what I mean by that, I think if you unpack that a little bit further is how do you make sure that you're setting expectations correctly? And this goes back to your, your prior question of like, what does it mean to, to make sure that our customers are happy customers? If, we're not building the right heuristic or framework of what that's supposed to mean, then everybody defaults to their own version of what successful customer means. Um, and, and that's a dangerous, that's a dangerous thing to happen because not, not everybody has the same definition of successful customer. So communication, uh, both in the organization of saying, Hey, this is what, these are what our goals are. This is how we think we can achieve them. Do we, are we all aligned on these and making sure that you have buy and you've communicated effectively because when you, when you don't have that, and I, I've lived this, this lesson numerous times and it's taken me a long time to learn it, which is, um, you, you know, you think of something in your head and you think you've communicated effectively. And if you haven't reinforced that and asked people to make sure that they understand it, all of a sudden your version of an outcome is vastly different than what ends up happening. And that's largely on you as either a manager or a leader, because you didn't do a good job of communicating your expectations with people. Um, and the other side of communication is, Anybody who works in, in a small growing company, you know, frankly, or, or any size company, I suppose, uh, but a startup in, in nature is there's always a lot of passion. There's always a lot of fire. And that's true because founders and executives at small companies um, tend to be very passionate. And with that passion, sometimes can, can come frustration and emotional um, tolls that it carries on the rest of the organization. And I think in order to keep that stuff in check, you have to be able to communicate effectively with people that may not share that, that type of passion. Um, otherwise you end up isolating yourself and becoming, 
you know, sort of a crazy boss or the really difficult person to work with just because you're super passionate and you don't know how to communicate effectively with your peers. Um, and at the same point, if your peers aren't giving you feedback that you're communicating like a jerk, um, that's not helpful either, right? So communication is just the biggest lesson that I continue to learn. And I always take away, um, well, damn, like I should have communicated better. How can I work on that? Um, so I don't know if that's helpful, but that's it, how it's, I think about it. Yeah, it's, it's very helpful. Uh, and and it, it, there's two nuggets that you brought up, right? One is, uh, one is like, how do you communicate at scale, right? With the whole group, with the organization. But the other side of it, right, is how do you communicate the way your people that you're managing want to be communicated? How have you been able to balance the two, right? Whether it's through one-on-ones or, or however, like, because the way I like to be communicated might be different than Patrick or someone else. Like, how have you learned to balance the two over the last couple of years for yourself? Yeah, um, it's, it's really interesting. I think this is like a learning, a growing process. I my personality is I rank very, very far or very high on the, the EQ spectrum. I'm far more empathetic leader than I am like a, um, a you know, uh, how would I describe it? Like a, a, like a direct tough leader. Um, I am less Bill Belichick. I'm probably more Pete Carroll as far sure. as uh, football coaches go. Um, and I think when I was young as a leader, what I would do is I assumed that everybody wanted me to be the sort of the warm, fuzzy, cuddly type of person when we had one-on-ones or um, really reinforce all the positive messages. But the reality is that's actually not true. And so what do I do? What do I do now? I think to answer your question, what I try to do is when I first hire people and when I first meet with them, I, I try to ask questions like, how do you like to be communicated with? Um, how do you like to be given feedback? Uh, how do you like to be praised? How do you like to be, how do you like to receive criticism? because um, everybody's also different in their own right. Some people want to or don't mind if they're criticized in public, be it in Slack or in the office or something like that. Other people don't want that right, for obvious reasons. And so if you don't give people a chance to essentially tell you um, how they want to be you know, praised, criticized, communicated with just in general, then you end up, um, you know, again, defaulting to what you think works best. And that's not always great. Right. And one of the things that we have a profit well is we talk about the, the platinum rule and the platinum rule takes what is the golden rule And the golden rule as everybody knows it is treat the treat, treat others like you would like to be treated. Um, we try to take that one step further and treat others how we think that they want to be treated. So we try to get into the heart of, you know, how they want to be communicated with how they want to be taught how they want to be, you know, frankly, just respected um, and use that as a proxy for you know, growing, uh, growing people in the organization. And um, that was always a challenge for me, because again, I always looked at people like, oh, they just, they want me to be the, the warm, fuzzy, you know, happy-go-lucky guy. And the reality is that that doesn't grok with 50% of the population of people that I was managing. And so um, it's another lesson, I guess, that took me a while to learn. Yeah, it reminds me of the book, uh, Radical Candor, right? I'm sure yep. you're familiar with it. It's, it's not only do you want to show people that you care about them, but you got to be yep. um, giving that feedback when it's necessary while being empathetic. So uh, very helpful. Uh, I, I like to kind of pivot uh, in, in terms of like the now. So how are, how are you guys adjusting to the current situation? Right. Uh, I know you somewhat been familiar or at least are familiar with like this remote work having two offices uh, or multiple offices, but obviously it's a lot different now. So how are you guys adjusting and what are some of the maybe processes you've put in place that you think are having a positive result? 
Um, you know, what's interesting is that like, you know, I think you could, you know, everybody's going through this, right? Like, I don't know if what proper well does is, is like great or if it's sure. perfect. It seems to be working okay for us, but I think like, who knows? And, and the reality is like, we're in week seven of this and who knows where we'll be in another seven weeks. Cause every day is, is sort of different. I think we, we saw pretty quick. We're not a huge team and our sales organization isn't that big. And we saw pretty early on and I'm sure other, other sales leaders did as well. Um, a lot of our prospects essentially that were in our pipeline and, and I'm sure you can, you were, you went through this as well to some degree, which were like, Hey, we, we really want to, you know, buy profit well or buy price intelligently. One of the two offerings that we sell, but we're so uncertain. There's so much anxiety about where the, the world is going. We're just essentially going to seize up and go on a budget freeze. Um, we saw that sort of a couple of those messages um, in, in like, I would say like mid February um, for people that were ahead of the curve. And I remember talking about that with the leadership team that we have at ProfitWell saying, hey, this is something we should be aware of. Um, you know, I don't know if we have taken action on it, but you need to be aware of it. And, and lo and behold, I think the, 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 you know, the curve caught up with, with all of us. And I think one of the things that we did is um, we tried to change our, our messaging. I mean, this was after lots of conversations of like, who do, who do we really serve at a time like this? Um, and we decided that there are people that we serve that could use us and our services and our products just as much today than they could have six months ago. But instead of really focusing on generating revenue and growing monetization, I think what the messaging changed from, which is essentially mitigating the risk of a downside, right? And making sure that you focus on redoing your monetization strategy for the folks that really love and need your product today versus trying to just acquire the market at large um, and hope you get high conversion numbers. Um, and so we changed our messaging really quickly. We, we did, we have a lot of events, you know, because of the work you do at Sasser, um, we had a lot, a lot of in-person events scheduled as we do a lot of them. And all of those essentially vanished because of um, sort of the, the, the state, state to state quarantine. And we took a lot of those. I have to give a lot of credit to Erin Finney who runs events for us. She took all the, the in-person stuff and essentially um, moved it to virtual uh, events. And we've done a really good job, I think, on the on our sort of marketing team of every week we have multiple webinars or virtual events to focus on the here and now versus six months ago. So outside of that, I think as far as the people are concerned and, and the teams at Profitwell themselves, we've obviously done full remote. We're trying to give everybody the the information and the the products that they need to be successful in their own right. I wonder like how and when do, do tech companies come back from this? Do we need the office space that we once thought we needed? Um, so it's interesting. We'll see what happens in the next couple of weeks though. But you know, hopefully it gives you some some context. I think it was more if I had to summarize it was probably being early enough to change the positioning and messaging of our product um, and focus on what we can do today to help customers in the marketplace versus what we were doing before. Um, and then the last piece was we actually built some products specifically for understanding the the market pulse in a post COVID world. So we have some we have some monetization strategy work we can do for people today that gives them insight into what the customers really really need from them versus what the customers sort of want from them, which gives an idea about what's happening in the market. Yeah. So I, I want to take a I want to call out a few things you brought up. One, you got to be agile. So credit and kudos to Aaron and the team for kind of making that pivot as soon as you can, right? Sooner you can make the adjustments, the more successful you can have, right? The whole, the plans, the playbook go away, right? At least for the short term, you just got to adjust. The second totally. thing you brought up, which is really important is messaging and positioning. Uh, it, like what used to work 
previously, it's, it's new territories now, right? And like, you almost have to unlearn everything you've freaking learned <laughs> for the, in some yeah. cases, right? And you got to start new. Uh, there's a client I work for and we've literally had to change everything, the playbook, the design. Uh, at least one thing that's worked for us is we've actually gone to people that we know are not going to buy. They're not in a position to buy today. And we've literally asked them to collaborate with us about how should we pitch to them. And it, I can't tell you how helpful that's been. So if listeners are listening, like go to people that you know, they don't have budget, they've been impacted, they're not going to buy. And frankly, like try selling to them because they don't have the pressure, right? Like if they know they can't buy, they don't, they don't have their cards up. So they will give you real feedback. And what's compelling about that is you'll see patterns where you can replicate from one company to the next company. Right. And the company I'm talking about is Plato. They're selling mentoring for technical managers, uh, engineering managers. Yeah. And it's amazing to see like the patterns that you hear from a engineering leader that's scaling a 20 person team and how that's different than someone that's scaling a hundred person team. Right. So uh, the reason I bring up that story is my question is what do you suggest tactically today that companies can do to kind of like, if you're, if you have to relearn everything, right? Like, yes, you can take a hypothesis and throw it and see what sticks, but what else have you seen, whether it's through you or some of your customers or your clients that like you're like you would recommend? Um, yeah, this is, I love what you're doing. I think that's a great idea. In fact, I might steal that um, and have some of the salespeople do that and, and start to figure out what trends we're seeing from call them sort of anti prospects. But I think that's a great idea. I guess to answer your question, um, one of the one of the things we're doing on the client side today for uh, what I would consider our, our high high value, high visible clients um, on the price intelligence side of our business, which is where we help companies figure out their monetization strategy. What we've created, or we're in the process of creating, we haven't had our first one yet because um, it's a bit of a it's a it's a bit of a, a challenge just to put the framework together. But what we're doing, or what the hypothesis is, is look, we're sort of all in this together, whether you're price intelligently, whether you're Sasser, whether you're Adobe, whether you're ClassPass, like everybody's going through the, the sort of the madness that is COVID and it's having an impact on some level of their customer, right? Um, whether it's B2C, B2B, whatever. So we're putting together essentially a customer council where we want to take um, the, the folks that we interact with the most at each client organization um, and have them join a bi-weekly conversation with us as a, as a group. Um, and that may be a 30-person conference call. The idea is to put these people together for 90 minutes or so, not to talk about profit well or to talk about um, what we do, but, but merely to facilitate a conversation and then back away and let people interact. And at the end of that conversation, if we repeat, what we'll do is we'll, you know, list of notes, feedback, um, and opportunities for the group of what some people are doing that, but that others could take advantage of, whether they're, you know, hopefully they're, they're not, they wouldn't be competitors necessarily, but what might work for Adobe, for instance, might work really well for Saster. And, and can Saster use a strategy or can they um, double click into a particular, you know, market that somebody else suggested because, you know, it's a great thing to do or use a strategy that other companies are doing. Um, so that's the, that's the goal it's been a little bit harder to put together just because it's, you know, it's all hands on deck with everything else that's, that's involved in the business. But that's the one thing that we're trying to do. Um, and then we're, we're putting together on the, on the sales side. And I mentioned this to you, Poya, which is 
we're putting together also people that are non-customers, all sales and marketing leaders in the Boston area get together that are not related to ProfitWell to do the same thing. And to talk about go-to-market and monetization strategy post-COVID, what works for some may work for others, and let's sort of share what we're, what we're seeing. And part of that is, again, we all sort of depend on one another for growth, and we might as well help each other in sort of a crazy time and, um, you know, sort of a rising tide carries all boats, so to speak. Yeah, it's almost like a circle, mentorship circle, right? Where we're all going through it, sharing, learning, and hopefully adjusting as a, yep. as a team. So, uh, and, and the totally. aspect I love about it is the community aspect, right? When you realize uh, we're all going through it together and, and hopefully this is far greater than one individual, uh, it, it kind of gives you that loyalty in a way as well. Uh, one of the things I didn't have the opportunity to do, and I'm, I'm sorry to do it now, is give us some context on like profit well, what you guys do, uh, like why people should listen to you, like what's your expertise. I, I know we're doing it halfway through our call, but it, it's been a it, it's been such a good call that I didn't have the opportunity to ask you yet. So here you go. Oh, you 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 flatter. Um... Uh, what what is it that we do <laughs> and why I don't know why people should listen to us sometimes I think um, I have no idea what I'm doing on a daily basis uh, but um, I, I'm surrounded by incredibly smart people that definitely do so I don't know if people should listen to me but they should listen to my colleagues and what I would tell you is that so proper well part of the reason why we started the business eight years ago is that we saw in the in sort of the SaaS ecosystem that was still sort of in its infancy so to speak was you know, at the time we focused on pricing. So helping companies price their product and nobody was, nobody in, in SaaS was talking about pricing. Everybody was talking about acquiring customers and driving acquisition numbers um, and retaining them to some degree. But um, primarily I think uh, as a, as a byproduct of Silicon Valley investing heavily in SaaS companies, those, those VCs really only cared about one thing and that was top line numbers from a conversion perspective and, and acquiring as many customers as you could. But the, the fallout from that is that many of those customers that people were acquiring weren't particularly good fits. Um, and that was partly because they were priced wrong or they were packaged wrong or they didn't have the right value metric or they were just going after the wrong persona in general. And so um, at the time it was called Price Intelligently. What was born out of it was essentially a people powered product. We had some software, we had a bunch of algorithms, collected data from the market. We ran that data through a bunch of different algorithms. And then we worked with people on the back end to essentially create recommendations around um, going, going to market with pricing, packaging, positioning, per personas, structure of pricing, et cetera. Um, that changed, or it didn't really change, but it evolved a couple of years later when we built a pure product called ProfitWell. And ProfitWell is just a, free financial metrics tool for any subscription business out there. It plugs right into uh, Stripe, Zora, Braintree, Chargeify, Chargebee, um, Recurly, you name it, we'll plug into it. And what it does is provides free metrics and, you know, your MRR, your, AT, your, your LTV, um, churn, et cetera, et cetera. And it does so, I don't know if this is the party line here, but it does so in a way that makes it really easy for people that don't necessarily work with Tableau or Domo or Looker to understand what's happening within their business. Um, we get some engagement level data in there. We have a bunch of segmentation possibilities as well. And then on top of that, we have a product called Retain. And Retain helps companies reduce delinquent churn. So credit cards that fail, um, many companies, SaaS specifically out there, have this problem where companies or credit cards, excuse me, fail for a number of different reasons, um, be it that they expired or they were using a debit card, faking a, a credit card. Anyways, we go out and we solve for that and bring back delinquent churn or bring down delinquent churn. So today we're sort of a two-headed two-headed monster, if you will. On one side, we help companies with 
pricing monetization, pricing uh, optimization, and the other is really sort of credit card delinquencies and you know, growth through proper metrics and understanding the, the root cause of where issues may be popping up from. So, oh, and then I think you asked why should people pay attention or listen to us? I, I, I don't know um, if they should listen to us necessarily, but they should listen to the data. So what's unique about ProfitWell is we sit on top of about 18 or so thousand SaaS companies um, that are all running through our system. And so we have a unique lens into the subscription landscape where um, I usually say subscription economy and I sort of have to give a hat tip to Zora uh, for that, because they, they own the, the terminology subscription, uh, the subscription economy, and we work well well with those folks, and they do great work. But yeah, the subscription economy is coined by um, Keen, the, the CEO of Zora. Um, but we we have a good good insight into uh, into what's happening within that ecosystem, and so the data that we publish on a fairly frequent basis in aggregate tells some pretty interesting stories about what's happening today, where we think the future of the market's going, um, et cetera, et cetera. So listening to us is one thing, listening to the data is totally separate, so. Well said, yeah, you can't, you can't argue with data, right? And, and reason. Um, yeah. Look, I'm, I'm gonna keep bringing it back to the now because it's, it's what people might have uh, top of the mind. Uh, one of the things historically, right? You, Patrick, the ProfitWell team has been, I've been huge on is this concept of like value selling or at least having your price tied to value. And if I'm uh, incorrect on that, let me know. A, a couple of questions there is like, what have you seen like value gets thrown around? So like, how do companies do that? How do you like, what have you seen work well from a perspective of how do you tie the pricing to the value you create? Right. And then the other aspect of this question is uh, look at what, might have happened before is different than now. So like, has that stance for you changed? And what I mean specifically is if a company is having difficulty paying for your product, uh, you think it's important to maybe have some sort of flexibility and, and what have you seen uh, be kind of good at scale to do with, with, with clients? Um, yeah, good question. I actually, so I think if, any, if COVID has taught us anything or the market has taught us anything right now is that value selling is probably more important than it ever has been. I think if we back up and, and we try to define what it means to sell on value, um, it doesn't have to be sort of this, this perhaps sort of scary monster. The idea of selling on value is, is essentially what we as consumers buy on every day in the sense that like you have to get at the heart of the, the difference between what I'm willing to spend for a particular product, be it a piece of software or a cup of coffee in the morning versus the value that it provides to me, right? That coffee provides me a, a caffeine boost in the morning, um, or I get to, you know, go out with friends and have a cup of coffee in the afternoon, right? And so there's some social components to it versus a piece of software allows me to do my job better or allows me to generate more revenue or save on costs. Um, and so what we've always done when it comes to price intelligently and the services we provide there is we preach this idea of getting to the heart of where companies and, and buyer, buyer personas see value. And so how do you actually figure that out? Um, unfortunately, the way that most people have figured that this out in the past is they take the price point and they throw it up against the wall and they see what sticks. Um, and the problem is that that price point doesn't necessarily stick for most people. And the reason for that is that the human brain doesn't understand single single digit price points, right? Or just price points in general. I don't necessarily know, Poya, that the phone that I'm talking to you on today costs $999, but I do know that it's more expensive than the cup of coffee that's next to me. I also know that it's less expensive than what I pay in rent every month. And so I have sort of a spectrum of value. And what I would tell um, practitioners out there or people that are trying to struggle with 
you know, getting to the right price or selling on value is, you know, you can, you can weaponize the, the way that the human brain thinks about value in a particular way. And the way that we do that is to start to understand where price points get so high that no matter what value you provide to your customer, they can't consider purchasing it all the way down to essentially when is a price point so low or inexpensive that you're actually going to question the quality of what that product does or what that service provides to you. Right. And the easy example here is that look in the morning, if you, if you're you know, really um, hunting down a, a cup of coffee, you might be willing to pay significantly more uh, than $5 for a cup of coffee. But you know, if you've already had a couple cups in the morning already and someone says, Hey, I have this amazing cup of coffee, would you pay $5 for it? You're probably going to say no, right. It's just not worth it at that point. Um, so this is the at the heart of what we do for our customers. But again, it's something that's relatively simple for people out there to do on their own, which is to get at the heart of where value is from a pricing perspective. And then when it comes to sort of the, the product categorization around functionality and features, we talk a lot about um, forcing people to make trade-offs. What I mean specifically by that is it's, it's much better and much easier to ask people to, you know, instead of stack ranking features or functionality of a product to actually say, what's most valuable versus what's least valuable, right? And just going back to that coffee example, you can have coffee that's um, in an ergonomically designed cup that fits in your cup holder. You can have coffee that's sourced from, you know, the, the lush mountains of Brazil. You can have coffee that um, is sweet, or you can have coffee that um, is portable with a straw. I and mean, you can only have one of those things, which one would you pick? And all of a sudden, if you do this over enough consumers, you start to get at the heart of really some trends around how people want to consume their coffee. And, if you find out that you're in a hot climate, most people don't care about um, the ergonomic cup. They don't care about the, the forage in the coffee or the flavor. They just care that it's portable and it has a straw because it's probably iced coffee. On the flip side, when you're in, you know, perhaps some, you know, Williamsburg, New York, and people love hipster coffee, um, they care about the origin more than anything else, right? And so you can you can sell to some some segments of the market one thing, and you can sell to other segments of the market a completely different thing. This is the same in B2B software. Um, and unfortunately, most people just don't take advantage of this. So that's how we think about selling on value. Uh, well communicated, well said. Uh, and I, I do agree, it's more important than ever now to jump in not only what value your product has, but uh, tying it to the outcomes that customers get, which brings up, I guess, my yep. second point. Uh, how, do, how does pricing play into maybe the outcomes or how do you illustrate at scale, whether it's through your pricing page or whatever it may be, right? Tying the different packaging and features or capabilities to the benefits that it can actually have uh, for a client. Like what have you seen work best? What, what's your feedback there? So the question is, how do you take what works best for a customer so, and tie it to it, the actual price point? Yeah, essentially what, like, let's just take this for example, right? Like the mentorship circle that you're doing, right? Let's just say hypothetically, you might want to charge for that, right? And one of the ways of doing it is you can say, hey, you get for 50 bucks, you get one or two meetings a month that you can join, right? But the other way of yep. kind of illustrating the value is by saying like the outcome you can have, right? Like meaning if yeah, we were yeah. able, if we were able to, uh, if we are able to help you get to an answer quicker, what might take you to do on your own in two weeks, you can do by joining the circle in one hour, right? That, that's valuable, right? There, it, you've saved us a lot of time. So what I'm trying to understand is, have you ever seen 
like how do you time the outcomes that your product allows someone to do into the pricing? If it, maybe you don't, uh, but that's kind of the question I'm trying to find out. Like how, how do yeah, this is, how does pricing tie into it? Great question. Um, so we look at this as essentially either pay for performance or outcome-based pricing to your point, um, which is in some respects sort of the holy grail of pricing because if, if SaaS has taught us anything or the subscription market has taught us anything that, that in, in the subscription economy, you are the closest you've ever been to your customer in the sense that they, are, they have to evaluate whether they want to renew a contract with you every month most of the time. And we're reminding people, hey, if we're not providing value to you, you can cancel your contract or you can cancel your subscription. And so how do you tie outcomes to, to that price point? I think this is, it's, first of all, it's really hard um, because not every product necessarily is designed to identify um, and surface those, those outcomes really well. I think a lot of the products in the marketplace could, could probably uh, do a better job of coming up with outcome-based pricing, but they, they don't because they rely on per user, or per API call, or per lead. Um, something that's sort of like, you know, one layer away from outcome. And if we look at something like, you know, HubSpot, for instance, HubSpot does, does pricing really well here. They're, they're almost outcome-based pricing, but they're a little bit they're a, bit, a little bit looser on how they define it. The way that they price is the number of, I think, either contacts or I forget how they define it, but contacts or leads in their database. So the more leads you put in, theoretically, the more money you're going to pay. And they know that you're theoretically going to be okay with that because the more leads you have, the more opportunities you have as a business to sell your product. And then one step further is likely more money you're going to make because you're closing more business. And so therefore, when HubSpot, you know, when HubSpot does well, it likely means that you as a, as a user of HubSpot or an owner of HubSpot also does particularly well. Um, the same is true for um, companies actually like Intercom or Drift when they have the way that they've set up their pricing is the more leads that they drive into their database from sort of the chatbots that they have on people's marketing sites, the more that you pay, right? So these are a net sort of tied to outcomes. We try to do this with our product called Retain. So Retain is a pay for, purely pay for performance. We go out, we collect delinquent credit card churn. We only charge you if we beat your existing recovery rate. And, and at that point, we only charge the delta between what we got for you versus what you were at before. So if we don't beat your existing recovery rate, then you don't owe us anything. Um, and that took us a while to, to sort of build into the product because it's not, it's just not inherent to the industry um, where most of the people that do this uh, from a competitor standpoint, they just charge by the amount of MR you have flowing through their system. We didn't think that was right because we only wanted to charge when people were actually successful using our product, which again, I think is probably what you should do. Um, but it, it's really hard to do, right? It's really hard to maintain. Imagine if you're a gym owner and you said, Hey, um, I'm only going to charge you when you come here and you either lose a certain percentage of pounds or, um, you, you know, you're able to compete in a, you know, amazing, you know, Olympic trials or something. Right. I don't know if, if they make a lot of money, um, because people aren't necessarily always motivated to, to that outcome. So you got to figure out what the outcome is and then you have to motivate people to achieve that outcome in a way that's sometimes different than what they're used to. So there's a bit of a culture shift there. Yeah. Uh, well communicated. Uh, I'm going to change topics because you keep bringing up, uh, one of the things you keep bringing up is this concept of value, right? Like in this is an example of your retain product. It reminds me of segment and Amazon, right? AWS, like how they price themselves. It's, it's the more you have success, the more they're going to charge you. But in theory, you'll be okay with it because you're getting value out of it. So yep. on the other side, right, from a customer facing perspective, uh, I'm assuming you run the sales team, the, uh, the customer success team. How, how do you align? Uh, how, how do you guys align internally? on making sure as the customer comes in, not only do you have 
like what success means in their eyes and their viewpoints and what they want to kind of get out of their partnership with you, but making sure the folks on the other end and customer success or support know to deliver on those. And then you're aligned and you can quarter after quarter, make sure the customer kind of is getting the value that they're seeking. I'm sure it's hard to do this for your 18,000 premium customers. So that's, that's a different story. Yeah. But for your larger customers, what have you guys seen work really well? Um, you're right. This is really hard. And I think this is not something we're perfect at as an organization yet. When I think what we try to, and this, is, this goes back to my point earlier about what's really important and what's really hard as you grow a business and that's communication. Um, because if you're not communicating, if your sales team isn't communicating effectively with the, a prospect or a potential client by saying, Hey, it's not, I don't just want to sell you this product and close a deal. What I, what I want to do is I want to understand what your ultimate outcome is. If your outcome is a, the business that we sell to when they're working with us on call increasing, you know, they're, they're well, not necessarily increasing, but you know, revamping their monetization strategy for some customers that may not be about increasing revenue. It actually may about, may be about um, opening up um, a channel in, in a different market and they need our help to figure out what, what that product's going to look like as far as success in that market. When we, we eventually have them as a customer, we execute and, and close a deal. We have to make sure on the sales side that we're, we're very explicitly clear and clearly communicating what that outcome is to the people that manage that client at that point, because otherwise the, the data we collect, the, the, the information we consume from them, the recommendations that we give them at the end of a project, if they're not aligned with, Hey, the outcome is us being successful in, um, Japan or you know Southeast Asia. Well, then, how the hell do we know if we did a good job? And I think in er- the early days of of Profitwell, I think where we probably failed to some degree internally was we would sign up a new customer. They would tell us, "Hey, we need help with our pricing," and we'd say, "Okay, cool, we'll help you with your pricing." But the reality was it wasn't that they needed help with the pricing; they needed help understanding the packaging structure so that they could go after a different segment of the market. And in in, in an effort to do so, that would help boost their you know, LTV by X percent, which would enable them to raise another round of funding, which would enable them to eventually IPO. And I don't think we got that granular um, from a clarity perspective. And that's the, that's the sort of the work that we teach today. And then making sure that's communicating, uh, communicated across all the people who have hands on that client. But at the end of a project, we can look back and say, hey, remember when we talked about increasing, you know, your, your ability to, to expand into this new market, here's, what, here's the success metric that we've achieved, you know, go on, go on your merry way. Um, but I don't think we're perfect at that. I think we probably have a long way to go until we get there. Uh, but, but I think we, we're trying. We're trying. No, I, absolutely. It's, uh, I've seen companies do all sort of things, right? Put the outcomes that you're seeking in the contract. So there's that psychology aspect to it. They do quarter reviews, you name it. But it's uh, from company to company, it's, it's a different thing. So I, at least I appreciate your transparency uh, as well as context. Look, we can keep going, but totally. unfortunately we're – uh, coming to the end of a end of our show, but before we say our goodbyes, uh, we're we're gonna do my favorite part of the show, which is called the fireway round, where I ask you a question and okay. you have about thirty seconds or so to answer it. Uh, so for the first one, look, you you've had such a diverse level of experience. One of the things that uh, came to mind is in this eight-year journey scaling ProfitWell, what resources, whether it's books, mentoring, like you name it. Uh, have helped you the most along your journey? Would you say? Um, I so I actually like maybe I take the contrarian approach here. Like I, I think that people there's a you know we all read the same books, right? And for the most part, we all um, have great. I, I think it's important to have, have 
read a lot. It's important to listen to podcasts. It's important to have a network of people that understand perhaps what you're going through. I also, for what it's worth, I think it's also important to have an outlet that is not none of this. You know, being part of a startup, um, especially Bootstrap One, is you know many days are exhausting and insane, and all I want to do is unplug from it. So you have to figure out how to set your boundaries, um, and you know, figure out a vice that you have outside of your work life that is not reading another um, the hard thing about hard things type book, right? Or listening to a podcast featuring, um, you know, some dude from Airbnb talking about, you know, how they growth hack their way to, um, you know, some level of success. All those things are great. But if you just get stuck in that echo chamber of startups, growth hacking, um, I think you lose touch a little bit with the reality of what you're doing, but also with your own mental health. And I think it's important for you to have an outlet that is, you know, what, you know, whatever it happens to be, if it's video games, that's awesome. If it's playing with your kids, that's awesome. If it's, you know, sitting outside and doing nothing, that's fine too. Um, but I would, I, that's typically what I do is I try to find an outlet that has nothing to do with my work to keep me sane. No, I love it. It's, it's, so what's, what's, what's your outlet? What's the hobby? Is it basketball, something else? Uh, yeah, a little bit of that. Like I, I'm a, um, I, I'm a, I feel like it's sort of cliche, but I'm a, have always been a big sneaker guy and, um, I spent a lot of time interacting and consuming blogs and podcasts about sneakers and just sort of the, the sneaker and MBA market at large. So that has been a good outlet for me that has nothing to do with pricing or packaging or profit well in general. Well, well, well shared. Uh, I, I've already told you this, but that was my surprise uh, for you at Saster. So maybe, maybe next year <laughs> we'll, we'll get this to you. Yeah, maybe next year. Hopefully you guys have it. I, I, I am my, uh, I, my, Interest has peaked, but um, I told you there are probably better people that deserve them. If you want to donate them, you're more than welcome to. Uh, what do you wish you had known uh, before you started out? And you can take that in any way you want before your first job, profit well, whatever. Um, I, I think that there is no, um, there, there is no romance in startups. Uh, and I think, I, I think that that's something that I probably wish that I had known early on there is this like false sense of, um, or at least there was when I got into it in, you know, pre 20, you know, 2000, I guess this was 2005, but there's always this like, Oh, it's, it's super sexy to go be a part of a startup or, or found a company, find a company and start a company, whatever. Um, the reality is like, it's hard. And for the most part, it kind of sucks. Um, you're dealing with, you know, you're dealing with high emotions. You're dealing with high stress. You're dealing with, um, you know, uh, most people that don't necessarily, you know, from, understand what you're going through um and and it's not as romantic as you as you might find um so i think i wish that somebody had explained like hey here are the reasons why you don't want to be a part of a startup and i, I sound t typically pretty cynical about this um, and i try to explain that when i when i interview people like here are the reasons why you don't want to join the company because because it's really hard um and in order to be successful i think you have to work really hard you have to make a ton of sacrifices and if you're not ready for that the emotional toll that that takes the physical toll that that takes on your body um you're going to be in for a hell of a ride. Um, the flip side there, of course, is like, hey, the, the you're climbing this mountain that hopefully has a has a top, has a peak, and that's not necessarily a liquidity event as a lot of people think about it. But it's really like being part of something that that's bigger than yourself, right? B building something that has tangible impact on the world that you did with people that you liked, um, people that you respect, people that you learn from, people that are smarter than you, um, and you. You, you put something out there and something came back, whether that's a network of customers or advisors or just people in the industry that, that respect you because of what you were able to do, that, that's worth a lot. Um, but I think there's this false sense of, hey, join a startup, it's awesome because they get great snacks in the office and there's you know, um, you know, great, great perks and benefits. That's just not, 
you know, that's just not the reality of, of what it really is like to work at a, a small growing company. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta paint the reality of the picture, right? Otherwise you're going to get um, yeah. a lot of people jumping in at uh, or not in it for the right reasons, or at least have the right expectations. Uh, this is probably my favorite question and I, I try asking it in every uh, subject. So what, what's, tell me something that's true from your point of view, but nobody else agrees with you on it. So let me tell you something. This is a good question. Let me tell you something that's true. Um, tell you something that's true that nobody else agrees. Um, I'll tell you this. I mean, centered like podcast, right? And this conversation isn't isn't entirely around sales, but I'll tell you this. And I'm not a traditional sales leader. Um, I, I am, I think, especially in Silicon Valley, I think the market focuses far too much on the wrong sales metrics. I think we are in love with this idea that um, sales is a numbers game. Um, and I actually think that the, the more that the markets change and evolve and people evolve and sellers evolve, I think it becomes less of a numbers game, more of a human game. And I've sort of gotten sick of hearing about um, you know, how to email more people in a day or how to create more leads in a day and how to create more opportunities. Because I think what it has done is we've essentially bastardized um, the, the idea of something that came around probably 10, 15 years ago with a guy named Mark Roberts from HubSpot, who was really ahead of the curve on using data to, to build a sales organization. I think what he was doing was then taken and run through a bunch of different cycles as a way to just focus on getting more leads in the door by forcing people to either you know, forcing people into a process that didn't really cater to how they wanted to buy a product. And we've gotten away from actually selling, right? We've seen a myriad of tools come into the market that have flooded um, everybody's tech stack that allows you to find leads faster, call people faster, um, sell, sell more product. And all that has been, I think, celebrated to some degree. But I, I actually think this is perhaps where people would disagree with me is like, I, I actually don't think that's the right way to, to approach sales. Um, we've moved from what was, you know, I don't want to get on my soapbox, but today we have this idea or concept of ABM, right? Account-based marketing. And I always sort of scratch my head when people say this, like, we're really good. We have a really great ABM pro process. And I'm like, you don't really have an ABM process. You just have a really good selling process, right? We went from selling years ago, which was thought of as this like amazing profession. And that's why we have people called account executives. They're executives for their accounts that transformed somewhere in the past 30 years to become sort of an annoying, you know, junior BDR straight out of college, sending canned emails to people. And now we're moving back to ABM, which is, you know, more focus and handholding for each account, which is the right way it should be done. But for some reason, for the past 30 years or so, we got away from this idea of actually selling. We got more into just flooding people's inboxes and voicemail boxes with um, dribble about um, signing up for, you know, a demo account that nobody really wanted in the first place, right? So I think um, we've we've gone far too far far further on the spectrum of focusing on metrics to the point where it's detrimental to sales organizations and i think we need to rein that back in quite a bit and forget about some of the products that make make people faster and more efficient because at the sacrifice of making salespeople faster and more fixed efficient what they're what they're leaving out is the the human human to human contact of what a really great sales rep does which is 
find holes in, a, in an organization, be able to plug those holes with a particular product. And sometimes that product's not the one that they sell. Um, and these are the, these are the things that makes great salespeople, great salespeople is that they're business people first. They're not salespeople. Um, and I think we've gotten away from that. Well said. Yeah. It's, it's the trade-off between uh, transactional versus like not relationship, but making it a little more than the transaction. So uh, the context of what you're selling and the dollar amount and everything obviously goes into that, but I think across the board, you, you nailed it. Uh, look, I, I want to thank you. I think this has been an excellent episode. Uh, you have communicated well, you've done the perfect amount of uh, anecdotes. So uh, appreciate your time before, before saying our goodbyes. Uh, the last two questions I have is I want to give you the opportunity. If you want to thank anybody, pay it forward to, to do so. And then, the second question is if people want to get in touch with you, um, are you open to that and what would be the best route to do so? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm Peter at profitwell.com. Uh, I'm always open to chat, um, chat shop on pricing or sort of growth and startups and all that fun stuff, whatever. And then pay it forward. What, what, sorry, what was the, re repeat that. What was the prompt? Yeah, no, if you want to thank anybody, this could be a team member, your parents, a customer, someone that's had a huge impact on you, if you want to pay it forward to that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, I have a, a really great team sur surrounding me. I, again, I, I am very little of what I do at this point is um, either my idea or starts with me. It doesn't really start with anybody outside of um, it, or it doesn't start with me often. It's more the team. And then I think that includes also the people that um, I'm close to outside of work, right? So I have a wonderful fiance who's um, incredibly patient and respectful of what we're trying to do. And, and sometimes that means that um, she's had to sacrifice um, some of her own time um, and some of her own, I suppose, patience for, for me. And I want to thank, you know, pe people like yourself for doing this. Um, you know, I got to know you many years ago. Um, you have become, uh, you're the type of, sort of sales executive that, uh, you know, we aspire our own people to, to be. Um, you're thoughtful about the way that you, you sell, you're thoughtful about your, your partners, your clients. Um, you, you seem seemingly care a great deal about their own success, which drives your own, your own personal sex, success, which is great. Um, and this is awesome. I, I appreciate um, you putting this together. I think uh, this is, this is an important thing that you're doing and um, I'm pumped for you. Uh if you could see me, you could, uh, maybe you're hearing me smile. So I, I appreciate the kindness at, at your support, your partnership, um, as well as the profit wealth teams support and partnership over the years. So thanks so much for joining. Stay yeah, safe yeah. out there. And I, I really hope to see you sooner rather than later, my friend. Thanks homie. Yeah, you too. I'll talk to you soon, man. Good luck. Bye-bye. Helps engineers and engineering managers become great leaders. And how do they do that? Well, Plato helps you find the perfect mentor thanks to its network of experienced engineering leaders who work at the world's best tech companies. For a monthly fee, you have unlimited access to mentors who can help when you have challenging situations as a manager. Visit them at PlatoHQ.com.